Welcome back to SwitchCast Live. We are here in Twinsburg, Ohio at the Switch Cars headquarters, and we're here with you, and we're glad you're here with us. We exist to entertain, edify, and educate you on the drive of your life, and here in Season 3, we are focusing on topics that help you become better buyers, owners, and sellers of your cars, and tonight is one that I personally have been looking forward to because I get to rant a little bit on the dumbest questions that people ask when they buy a car. And this should be helpful to you because they're not just questions that annoy me as a car dealer, but they're ones that just straight up don't make sense, that don't actually help you get to the bottom of what you need to know. Because when you're asking questions of a seller or a dealer or anybody selling a car, as a buyer, you need to know what well what's wrong with the car what isn't wrong with the car maybe what the history is and there's a bunch of things that will help you make an educated decision both on whether or not you want to own the car and what price you should pay so uh, with that we're going to get right into some of these questions i have 10 questions tonight is the IMS ev- bearing one on there? <laughs> no, this is <laughs> this is broad. This is not specific. There are some that apply more to luxury cars, but this should be uh, essentially applicable to anyone buying a car. Uh, it is not super random, obscure stuff like, does that Hemi Cuda have a hood tack or not? <laughs> Which I don't even know if that's a thing yeah, on Hemi Cudas. It sounds real. could have fooled me. <laughs> muscle cars, <laughs> yeah, hood tack, right. I don't know. Um, so... This will, uh, <laughs> these should help you. Uh, we've got the 10 questions that nobody needs to ask, but everybody does tonight. And um, we're going to give you some some good information and s- some rants, and we're going to have fun. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, throw them in the flow of wherever you're watching live. Tyler will pick the best ones and relay them on if they're worth it. So, uh, yeah, make it count. Um, but no, we're, we're happy you're all here. We're happy for all comments especially the ones that come with with dollar gifts attached to them because i guess that's a thing you can do on youtube i can take bribes (laughs) what they don't go to you oh well oh well yes i I need to talk to ethan a little bit see if we can work something out uh so the 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 fundamental issue with the majority of these questions is that i think most buyers are are unable to judge condition or how well a vehicle has been cared for on their own. And I know this is a little bit of a, I guess, maybe a seasoned car dealer, maybe a car snob saying like, oh, well, I know how to call a car and and other people don't. But I, I really think it is that people are making up for their lack of ability to spot paintwork or to see in a car how well it's been cared for, generally judge the condition. And it's difficult to do if you don't do it all the time. It took me years and years to to learn what I know, and I'm still learning. But so what they do is they use metrics, or we use metrics, that we have assume have a correlation to the condition, but don't actually. The metrics really only have a correlation to value because we've been told that they should. I mean, look at friggin' Carfax, right? So it used to just have, here's the number of accidents, number of owners, miles, etc. And now it has actual dollar signs with arrows going up and down saying, well, it's worth more because of this and less because of that. But those are all just things on a piece of paper that are interpreted by an algorithm that 
got a data feed from some government department. Like, do you really trust any of that information? Half the time it's wrong. And uh, so so we're here to help you ask the, the real questions that you need to know and kind of get to the bottom of it, cut through all the BS uh, when you're buying a car. So the first one, and we're doing this in no particular order. Uh, it's just the order that they came to me. The first one, and this is a big one. It is probably the number one dumbest question I get asked to the point where I don't even know how to answer it anymore without being a complete smart aleck. How many owners? How many owners does a car have? Uh, people, there's so many things wrong with this question. It, it fundamentally doesn't matter how many owners a car has had, period. I've done studies on this. I can take data from my 20 years in the car industry. This is not an opinion. This is data. There is zero correlation, zero correlation between the number of owners and the condition of a car, period, period. I've seen 12 owner cars that were impeccably cared for, gorgeous in every way, and one owner cars that were absolute turd buckets, just junk. But the... The underlying assumption is that people only sell a car if something's wrong with it. So they think like, oh, well, the more owners a car had, then that means like they were just playing hot potato. And that's a stupid assumption. Uh, the second assumption is that one owner is better than two is better than eight, because the longer someone keeps a car, the better they care for, it, which is complete hogwash. Um, now... It, people also apply this on an absolute scale, not a relative scale, right? So the average person of an average car keeps their car for seven to eight years. Now, the average high-end car is way lower because they're toys, not tools. So let's say for the sake of argument, it's three years. I would say maybe even less than that in my experience. Um, people are, are seemingly okay with a six-year-old car that has two owners, but then you get a 12-year-old car that has four owners, and they, oh, man, that's that's too many. And then 18-year-old car, heaven forbid, six owners, that's so many. And it's like the older a car is, the less owners per time they want it to have. They can't do the math and say, oh, my gosh, that car's from 1980. It's 40 years old, and it has eight owners. That's actually not that many because they all kept it for five years. Five years is a long time to keep a toy. So the, the one, that's one thing is, is people don't actually think about the question they're asking. But, um, it, yeah, it, it's just they assume that when somebody's selling a car, there's something wrong with it. And if it's changed hands a lot, then... Like it's a hot potato. And while that can be true in uh, the extreme scenario, for example, if you look at the Carfax and it's jumped from dealer to dealer to dealer over the past year and a half and it's remained for sale and never gone to a, an end user, then you can say, OK, well, it's had a, a lot of owners in a very short period of time. Now we're getting into the nitty gritty of maybe people are trying to pass off of a, a problem. But seven owners over 10 years doesn't mean anything. Um, so, and one owner doesn't mean anything. You could have a terrible owner, a guy that just ran it through the, the 
automatic car wash and never did an oil change, you know, like the average Mustang owner, I guess. So I, that that's just the dumbest one. That one needs to be completely thrown out and it never will because Carfax places so much importance on it and people are just they're ingrained to think like that's the most important question in the world. And I've literally had people say, I will only buy a one or two owner car. And I'm like, well, as soon as you buy it, you added an owner. So now it's a three owner. So like, what does it matter? It doesn't matter. Something that was ingrained in my head just from learning from my dad. And I'm sure most folks of the previous generation have that same mindset. It was like, ah, it's got too many owners. You don't want that for the same reason. They probably like hot potatoing a terrible car, but Okay, so that's a, it's actually a good point. There is a generational mindset that our parents and grandparents had that applied to all of life. So if you look at the average length of a career for their generation, it's like 10x what it is for our generation. So they would have jobs and they would work for the same company forever. They would live in the same house forever. So that mindset applied to cars as well, even to toys. Like they would just buy that car, they'd buy it new, and they would have it forever. Yeah, that's true. So I guess I can understand that generation thinking of it that way. But at the same time, that needs to be thrown out when you're looking at high-end cars. Because like people, people get tired of stuff, and they trade it. And yeah, for sure. It's just a different way of it's a new way of thinking about things. Well, and I had the same thing. I'm not trying to jump ahead on your list accidentally, uh, but it was the same thing. He never thought that I should buy a car with over 100,000 miles on it. He's like, nah, they're all crap after that, which to an extent, older cars probably. It's but you know, it's, it's probably somewhat fine. valid. Like miles do correspond to wear in general, but mileage is not an automatic and I don't think you shouldn't ask. That question is not on the list. You should ask how many miles a car has. But miles does not correlate to condition either. It is not a direct correlation because it depends how it was stored, who had it, what climate it was stored in, whether it's parked outside or inside, whether it's towed behind an RV or not. Like so many different things, whether it was a 5,000 mile track rat or a 50,000 mile highway cruiser that was babied, right? Like, I think there's more of a correlation between miles and condition than other data points that people use improperly in order to try to judge a car's condition without just judging the car's condition. But there's outliers enough that I don't place that much importance on it. Gotcha. Like well, let's get your car has 95,000 miles and it's beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I don't have a mic so they can't hear. But remember that Z3 we looked at? They, and it changed like owners like six times in like four months. Sir, I think you should text your question into the yeah. live stream so Tyler can we've read got it. got producer Ethan trying to short circuit <laughs> the system that we've set up for community let interaction me, let me over here. And you a, a studio <laughs> mic. All right. We have an in-studio question from producer All right, Ethan. look out, look out, everybody. Ah, um, here it goes. So, so a few months ago, I don't know if you remember, we were looking at a Z3, not from a reputable dealer, and it changed hands, I think we found, like, four times in six months, and that seemed to be cause for concern in that. So does the frequency within the time range that these transitions of titles are occurring, does that factor into this equation? Absolutely, Yes. Um, it, it warrants a closer look. It is not an automatic because again, I have some customer, I have a couple cars that 
like changed three owners in a year or year and a half. And it was literally just happenstance. They bought it and then they found another car they loved and they traded it in. And then in one scenario, the guy who traded it bought it back after it had gone through two other owners. So if you look at the Carfax, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible car, but it actually got better each time. But that's something where I knew the scenario usually I would say, yes, that's a reason for a big red flag is if it's changing hands a lot within a short period of time. But again, people are asking just, they're applying that general philosophy as, you know, a blanket application to all cars that have more than two owners. And you you can't do that. You have to look deeper. So next question, was it serviced at a dealer? I think the uh, the PPI discussion from a couple weeks ago, pre-purchase inspection, comes into play here and is relevant because we talked about how deal independent dealers versus franchise dealers will do different types of inspections. And even within those shops, each tech is different. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about franchise dealers Um I got to be careful what I say. I'm not going to throw anybody in particular under the bus, but I've heard of a Highline European store, which we would expect, okay, they're servicing cars with the proper oil and all the factory uh, recommended stuff. I've heard of a Highline European store using recycled oil out of the giant bins to do oil changes on like under warranty Highline German cars that... Yeah, they're getting the cheap recycled stuff and they're supposed to get mobile one synthetic whatever's in the book. Like, listen, I'm a car dealer, but car dealers are shady as crap and they will pull some freaking stunts. So it doesn't matter if your car was serviced at a dealer or an independent. It's was it serviced and was it serviced by somebody who knows what they're doing? There's good franchise dealer service shops there's bad ones there's good independence there's bad ones like that is not an automatic this car is good and even an argument can be made that people who care less about their car service them at the dealer because they're lazy and they don't know any better so they just go well i bought it here so i'll just take it to the dealer and service it and they don't realize that they're getting ripped off or or charged for things that aren't being done or don't need to be done or whatever you know i got charged like seven eight hundred dollars for a b service on our mercedes e350 the mercedes deal i'm like that's a complete friggin' ripoff and their 700 point inspection didn't even tell them that the brake rotors were shot which i could tell from driving the car right just down the street so like you could say that the people who care more about their cars will search out a really good independent and make sure that their their car is getting what it needs but again there's there's no hard and fast rule one is better than the other it all depends but that question needs to be totally thrown out so two questions down let's go to a a commercial all right switchcast is brought to you by celebrity machines celebrity machines is offers more than 250 screen accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and tv shows like back to the future ghostbusters the fast and the furious 
Breaking Bad, and so many more. Celebrity Machines also makes our dealer insert plates, as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever. Visit CelebrityMachines.com for more info, and use promo code SWITCHCAST to save 25.39% at checkout. I know the uh, Corvette curmudgeon has entered the room now, but I think you've got more of those fancy schmancy dealer insert plates on the way, don't you? Talk to yes, we do the the man himself. Yes, uh, from we, ce- the celebrity who runs Celebrity Machines. We ran out of our wonderful metal switch cars insert plates, so we're getting more. They were so popular. Actually, yeah. we just sold so many cars. Well, I stole one. You put one on my 968 at some point. It's sitting in my apartment. Can I have somewhere. it back? <laughs> and you can if you really need it. All right. So uh, for the Cormac Corvette curmudgeon today, uh, I've got a news article that I'll read a little bit of for you uh, about what happened to a, uh, a Corvette recently. What generation? Uh, this is a C5. Oh, best one. Yeah, they're, they are pretty attractive. I'll give you that. I don't know, we don't see eye to eye all the time, but that... Uh, it's got the friggin' LS1. It's the best engine they made. Gets 30 miles a gallon on the highway and is reliable, and I haven't ever changed the oil. So, we might need to redirect you to listen to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> so... On February 14th, 2023, 22-year-old Terry uh, was making his way around the corner in uh, his hometown in Tennessee with the blood pumping and the loud roar of his V8 under the hood. Uh, This drive was going to be exciting. However, he might not have imagined himself crashing his beautiful 1999 silver Chevrolet Corvette. You mean his dad's Corvette? It says his. Nah, it can't be. He's 22. But, But the article would not lie. It says it's his. Nah, no, no, no 22-year-old should have a Corvette. Fine. He potentially crashed uh, his, uh, well, he did crash what could be his dad's Corvette into the home of a local resident. Must have been smoking drugs or something. He's probably selling drugs. That's how a 22-year-old afforded a Corvette. I've been friggin' working in the factory fixed income the whole time. I didn't have that kind of money. When I was 22, I was making $8 a week. Working, working sixty hours, friggin' in between school. I didn't, I didn't have no friggin' Corvette. I rode bicycle. Well, apparently this guy did. Do you want to see the picture of what happened? Well, it's, it, it serves him right. Friggin' selling drugs to buy a Corvette or stealing it from his dad should wreck it into a house. I hope he goes to jail. It's pretty rough. The Corvette definitely looks worse than the chimney does. I'll tell you that. He did a number on it. He. He crashed into a chimney. Yeah, crashed into a chimney in the house. Japers. I hope they weren't having a fire at the time. <laughs> it doesn't look like they were, no. It uh, was the middle of the day. It was bright and sunshiny and everything, and he still managed to hit this house. That's probably. He was, he was, he was high as a kite. Friggin' couldn't see. His pupils all dilated and couldn't see his sun in his eyes. Friggin' young frickin' whippersnappers buying these friggin' hot rods. <clears throat> Well, I uh, we appreciate your insight as always. Uh, Corvette Curmudgeon is brought to you unwittingly by the Corvette Buy Sell Trade Group on Facebook, uh, your source for cranky boomers, overpriced Corvettes, and reinforced stereotypes. Whew. That this article's rough, I gotta say. I, I like your line about <laughs> that. <laughs> it's like this guy. It's like my guy was trying to LS swap a chimney. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Oh, man, there's a lot of jokes. <laughs> that car went up in smoke. Yeah, like, and I don't no. understand. It looks clearly on somebody's <laughs> that lawn. That brick, that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, man. All right. 
Oh, if if he had an iron block car, it would be just another brick in the wall. <laughs> <Just> but <laughs> can't that say was, that about an that aluminum LS. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back to questions that nobody needs to ask, but everybody does. Everybody does <laughs> when they're buying a car. Oh gosh, what's in that water? This is this is another one of my favorites because I'm from Ohio. Where is the car from? Or some other variation of that of like, oh, I see you're in Ohio. The car must be rusty as crap. Asked about a car that's 20 years old and has 7,000 original miles. Yeah, they drove those 7,000 miles in the winter. And oh, by the way, on the Carfax, it showed it lived in California for the last 22 and a half years. And we got it three weeks ago. So, yeah, it's it's an Ohio car. I mean, people just don't think. Anyway, the, the rants aside about people not paying attention, it seems like a valid question. And actually on Cars and Bids, which is a great auction site, but one of their like uh, subtitles or subheadings they have for cars, they consistently will say where the car lived which I find to be infuriating because, again, it's reinforcing incorrect assumptions. And half the time, it's like not even it's like, wow, it's lived here most of its life. OK, well, unless it's been there the whole time, it doesn't matter, because if you put a car in the salt once and then move it to California, it's still going to rust. But the the underlying assumption, again, is that there's certain regions that are better for cars than others. And that's not entirely true, right? So if you say, well, cars in the Northeast are from Ohio, then it's going to be salty. A daily driver Toyota Camry, absolutely, you can make that assumption. A Porsche, probably not. We have a giant storage facility out back that is full because people are trying to protect their cars and keep them out of the salt. And that's the case all throughout the Midwest and Northeast. People care about their cars and... You know, I think a lot of cars from around here are kept nicer because they only drive them five months out of the year and they keep them in the garage and it's a fairly temperate climate. Whereas people that assume automatically a car from California, or Arizona, or even Florida is a good car. I tell you what, Florida is one of the scariest states to buy cars from because they have constant sun constant humidity and people don't actually keep their cars in their garages they have these carports so they're exposed to all of the weather that just destroys the outside of the car it eats the rubber it eats the paint and you have like 90 percent of the 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 state is coast so people park their cars outside at a restaurant drive them to the beach whatever yeah they're not driving them on salty roads but you have all this salt air that's just rusting these cars like crazy. So like we did a PPI in a Lamborghini Gallardo one time that was from South Florida and the underside, the dealer was just like, we're not even finishing the PPI. We put it up on a lift and you should run because it was all rusted out. And in the Southwest, you have dry climate, which again, all of the rubber, all of the seals can dry out if it's not stored in a properly humidified climate controlled garage. You get sandblasting because you get sandstorms out there. Um, again, the sun will just beat down on them. California is a good example. People never store their car inside or never think they do because it's always 80 degrees and sunny. Well, that'll kill a car. So 
making an assumption that because a car is from a certain climate, it's good or bad is a really, really dangerous assumption. You need to know a lot more about the car. And ultimately, you just need to look at it because you can tell by looking at it how it's been cared for. This is probably the most dangerous assumption that people make about a car. Um, it's not the most common question we get asked, but it, it really just it's a bad question to ask. The next one, have you had any interest or offers? Now, all this tells me as a seller is I'm not ready to buy. It also takes away your negotiating power if the answer is in the affirmative. So you want to establish yourself as the best possible buyer when you're trying to buy a car. You want to be the best option that that seller has. And you don't do that by getting the seller to think about how much other interest they've had. I mean, it's like going out on a first date and being like, so do you have other guys that are after you? How are they? Right? No, you're selling yourself. And I got prospects. I'm going somewhere. You should go on a second date with me. Like it, it, it doesn't ultimately matter. And the only offer that matters is the one that buys the car. So a guy could have had a, a ton of interest, but it's all low ball offers. But if you get them to think about that interest, then that takes away your hand uh, in negotiation. Another one that's that's closely related to that one is how long has it been for sale? Also kind of irrelevant. And there's a there's an, a flip assumption to that, right? So people think uh, similar to like if a car's been through a lot of owners, well, there must be something wrong with it. People also assume incorrectly that the longer a car has been for sale, the more likelihood there that there's something wrong with it. There's a, a, a underlying reason about the car that's preventing the sale. That could be the case, but more than likely, it's that the seller is asking too much money or isn't flexible or whatever, and so it's just sat for a long time. And so people think like, oh, well, the car's been for sale for three months. Nobody else has bought it, so there's something wrong with the car. And honestly... That's just not true. Um, so it's it's really not a good question. Um, well, like my 996 was for sale for nine months before I bought it. The reason was because he was asking too much money until I found it. Had nothing to do with the gray interior. Not yeah. even a little bit. <laughs> but Yeah. And I advise my consignment sellers on this, too, because they want to start with some pie in the sky number like oh well let's just let's just shoot for this number that's 20 percent over market value because i'm not in a hurry i hate that line and i'm like the problem is if you don't get an offer and you'll probably scare people away from making offers because your price is too high then it's going to sit on the market and then all the people who would have been interested at a reasonable number no longer will be because they're assuming that the reason the car is still on the market is because there's something wrong with the car so I'm like, you got to lead with your best foot forward, not saying you got to just, you know, start at the bottom, but you got to be careful with how you price a car. The next one, is it on consignment? Now, this typically only get asked, gets asked of dealers, um, but we get this question quite a bit. And I usually just say it is for sale. 
Now, there is a valid reason for asking this question. If you live in Arizona or Illinois or Nevada, I think it is. There may be a couple other states, but I think it's just those three. If you buy a car from a private party, you are exempt from sales tax. Whereas if you buy it from a dealer, you have to pay sales tax. So I understand that. The problem is a lot of states also regulate dealers. So if they have a car on consignment, they're required to sell the car through the dealership. So even if it's on consignment, you, you know these, these buyers, to avoid sales tax, they want the dealer to basically step out of the situation and allow them to do a private party deal, which could or could not be illegal for the dealer. It's kind of a gray area. Again, it depends how you do it and what state you're in. Um, but uh, aside from that, I get asked that question from people who don't live in those states. And I just, I don't know why. I always ask them, I'm like, why are you asking? And typically they think that they'll have more negotiating power with a private seller. And this is, uh, this is illustrated in like the fact that if I put up a car for sale myself as a private seller, I get way more people trying to scam me, trying to offer me ridiculous trades, lowballing offers that they don't bother the dealers with because they know the dealers aren't going to, you know, allow them to waste their time. So I think that these people are asking because they're like, well, I want to see if I can take advantage of the seller or offer him or her some crazy trade or whatever. And I'm like, no, you're dealing with me. I'm the dealer. I'm the representative. You don't get to play games with the seller. This is why they've hired us to do this. Um, and we treat consignments just like we do inventory cars. Um, we'll take trades against them. We'll finance them. It, it's, it's exactly like buying a car out of our inventory. So it really doesn't matter whether or not a car is on consignment. Uh, it, it could matter when it comes to closing the deal, as we talked about last week with uh, dealers who were going under and not paying off consigned cars. Um, so it matters from a paperwork and logistics perspective to make sure that the, the, the dealer actually has the rights to sell the car and you are going to get your title. Um, but apart from that, it doesn't have any bearing on the negotiations or the condition of the car. Um, so it's just something you need to deal with in closing. Um, and, and I think people ask that because they think they have more negotiating power too. But again, it's it's almost exactly the opposite. Consignment cars are typically the ones that the seller wouldn't take a reasonable offer. So the dealer agreed to consign it. And the, the sellers are often more stubborn, whereas a dealer, like they have a fixed cost basis and they're like, oh, if I get a good offer, it's gone. So it's often easier to buy a car out of inventory than, than out off of consignment. How many are we at? Like what number was that? Oh, good. That is um, six. Six. I think it's time for a commercial break then. Yes. Six out of ten. Not bad. Switchcast is brought to you by Boxcast. Boxcast is a live streaming company based in Cleveland, Ohio, and they serve broadcasters and viewers around the world. Their founders launched Boxcast back in 2013 with one purpose, and that is to make people a part of the experience. If you're looking to live stream your podcast, church, service, car show, sporting event, wedding, or even your cannonball attempts, BoxCast is an easy, flexible live streaming platform for organizations. And BoxCast is so easy that we are broadcasting this entire show with a phone. Head on over to switchcars.com forward slash BoxCast for your free trial. 
Excellent. What segment do we have coming up next, Tyler? Uh, do you want to do, do is Wall of Shame a thing we're, we want to do next? Wall of Shame is a thing we could totally do next. All right. All right. So this one comes to us from a wonderful Facebook group of, of dealers and salesmen only. And uh, we get our own share of, of ridiculous emails from customers, but sometimes I got to dig dig deep to, uh, to others, or sometimes they just have better ones. But... Um, I think last week we talked about a guy who who drove his BMW home and then wanted to return it uh, for you know whatever reasons. Doesn't matter if it's a silly reason or not. You buy the car as is, and you had a third party inspection. But good to know that we're not the only ones dealing with this because this email came into a dealer. I'm reaching out to you. Uh, this is the the customer, the buyer. Uh, emailing the dealer. I'm reaching out to regretfully inform you that the engine of the X5 has seized at 126,000 miles. <laughs> Big surprise. This is a 2012 X5. <laughs> All the BMW nerds will be like, it lasted that long? <laughs> are, there, are there still high-pressure fuel pump things? I those don't or know. Something? I don't know. Dan Doucette would know. I don't know. I, I think the, is that, could, I, that might be the twin-turbo V8 okay. motor, Bailey's nodding, yes, and the turbos go out and all sorts Yeesh. of things go, yeah, just not a not a good generation of car. Anyway, the vehicle was purchased around 102,000 miles. That is almost exactly two years of ownership and about 13,000 miles per year. Good, you can do math. Having completed routinely maintenance, which can be proven, it is shocking to experience a catastrophic engine failure for driving merely 23,000 miles for duration of my ownership of the vehicle. I would appreciate it if you could please let me know what, if anything, your dealership can willing to do to try to figure this situation out. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine going back to somebody I bought a car from two years later and being like, eh, it died, bro. <laughs> Give yeah. me money. Let's, let's figure this situation out. It's like, I don't oh know, maybe gosh. they should have answered the call about their car's extended warranty or something. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't see the Chinese spy balloon. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty that. sure that dude went through the F&I and they were hard <laughs> selling him on extended warranties. And he's like, no, nah, decline. I'm smarter than that. Oh, you bought a 2012 BMW with 100,000 miles. And he's like, oh, it. I failed after driving only 23,000 miles. No, it failed after 126,000 miles. Yeah. Eesh. God. Probably wasn't perfect when he bought it either. Oh, uh, you guys should have known. No, cars are cars are machines. They don't tell you when they're going to break. They tell you when they're broken. Exactly. They definitely or don't they scare you tell sometimes. you two years in advance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they give you a little fright sometimes. Uh, like my cooling level on the way down to Amelia. <laughs> I can't even. Uh you know, the salesmen in the group are like, oh, man, get him in there, sell him a new car, whatever. And I'm like, bro, anybody who is complaining about an engine or any mechanical failure and emails a dealer two years after purchase to like, that's not a customer. That's a liability. That is not a customer I want. Like, bye bye. Oh, gosh. Are we on Speaking to number seven? Of, number seven. Why are you selling it? Because the engine seized. Um, this is a really dumb question because you're, you're basically asking the seller to lie to you, right? So the, the valid answers that I've heard, or the, best, the best time is when people ask me why I'm selling it. And I think they know I'm a dealer and I'm just like, 
Because it's to, my job. Yeah, to make a profit. Uh, yeah. Uh, but other valid answers that I've heard, but kind of why you don't want to ask the question would be uh, nasty divorce. I hate the car. I'm too old and I can't get out of it anymore. I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I can't afford my kid's college. This thing is a British pile of junk and my mechanic earns more than I do. My business is suffering and I need the money. Like, I, these are awful answers. Like, do you really want to know why somebody's selling it? I feel like if you're buying the British car that deserves that response, you should know that it's going to be that bad. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a perfect That's response. I never have to explain anything to British car buyers. Yeah. They're like, oh, I know. <laughs> I know I'm friends with my mechanic. He was in my wedding. <laughs> They're the best because I'm just like, hey, it leaks oil. It's going to cost you a lot. They're like, cool. Yeah, it's like, wow. I, they budget for it. <laughs> right. Or it just leaks it all the time. So it's normal operating procedure. Right. Right. Yes. There's a joke about a, a British car that uh, somebody took their Aston Martin down to get serviced. At, I'm sorry. No, their Jaguar. Somebody took their Jaguar down to get serviced at the, uh, the, the, the local wizard. And he called them a couple days later and said, uh, ma'am, I'm, I'm so very sorry. I've, I've got good news and or sorry, I've got, yes, good news and bad news about your Jaguar. And she says, OK, great. Uh, I'll take the good news first. He said, well, the good news is your Jaguar caught on fire. She goes, oh, what's the bad news? He goes, well, the bad news is I put I put it out. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> anyway, back to, to non-British cars. But no, like. The point of the question is, is this car terrible? Is it a problem child? But if it is, the seller damn sure ain't going to tell you. Like, oh, yeah, I've had nothing but problems. I can't fix this car. It's a hunk of junk. So will you take my problem out off of my hands? Like, nah, they're not going to tell you that. Maybe one in a million will. But no, nobody's actually going to tell that you that. And you're more than likely just going to get some personal story that you don't actually want to hear or somebody's going to say well i'm going to buying a car that i like better well, what don't you like about this car and that's personal preference and you don't want somebody else's opinion of the car you're going to buy because it might be your dream car and they're gonna like ruin it for you right so i don't know uh oh gosh i got asked this one the other day and this obviously only is a question that gets asked of high-end cars but please please for the love of god people stop asking this question what will it be worth in five years do you actually get asked that for real i got asked that the other day it was 10 what? years actually Ugh. 10 years what will it be worth in 10 years i, I if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know how dumb that question is. It's like the the posts on, you know, uh, it's like the posts on driving enthusiast page about people not getting out of the left lane, like the PSAs. And I'm like, listen, nobody on here is going to like nobody that needs to see this is going to be on this forum. They're too busy camping in the left lane. Uh, yeah, but. <sighs> The this unfortunate question 
has been perpetuated by opportunistic dealers and salespeople and collectors, I guess, in in the collector car sphere who you love to use the line, it will only go up in value. It's only going to go up in value. I'm not denying that some cars do go up in value over time, but they don't only go up. They go up and they go down and they go up and they go down. You'll never hear this question about a Camry or for that matter, even a base 911 and definitely not about a Corvette. (laughs) But like if the seller knew the answer, one, they wouldn't be in the car business or they wouldn't be selling their car because they, you know, have unlimited funds. Because if you that you had that kind of a crystal ball, then, uh, yeah, you wouldn't need to be selling cars. And if they knew it would be going up. They wouldn't be selling it, right? How many dealers have I seen that are like their their sales pitch to selling some collector car is these are the next thing to pop. These are only going up in value. These are, you know, poised for crazy investment potential. And I'm like, if that's true, you wouldn't be selling it. Like it's asking, it's like asking a gold bullion salesman if gold is a good investment. It is for them because they buy it wholesale and sell it retail. And that's the same thing dealers do. So like, I just, it's the dumbest friggin' question. It's, it's annoying when people use that as a sales pitch on their for sale ad. And it's just, it's a question that needs to be thrown out. It's another one that if you ask it like the last one, if you ask that question, you're asking to be lied to because people don't have a crystal ball. And the guy who even asked that last week, he goes, I know you don't have a crystal ball and you always say that, but what's it worth? What's it going to be worth in 10 years? I'm like, and it was it wasn't a joke. It wasn't like a hee hee ha ha moment. It was no, like a serious question. I lit into him. I'm like, that's that's such a it was he was actually asking about whether or not he should sell his car, but like same principle applies. And I was just like, if you're asking that question, you should sell your car because you're only in it for the money. Yeah. Like if you like your car, keep it. And if it goes up in value, cool. Bonus. If it goes down in value, you won't be that upset. But if you're only reason for keeping it is for the dollar only reason for buying is for the dollars it's not a good proposition yeah doesn't compute for me and you also shouldn't use that as a sales pitch to your significant other of this is why i should buy this car because it's a great investment no do not i mean that's like the bougie version of the redneck like i'm gonna collect dale earnhardt commemorative bronze plates and you know monte carlo ss diecast models because there are retirement no you're you selfish ass like that is you wanting to have toys and trying to lie to your spouse saying oh this, this is our retirement this podcast has been you've gone it's been like a sine wave you get like more <laughs> salty and then a little bit more dejected and sad and then the saltiness ramps back up again it's pretty good yeah salt, i thought it was just salt, gonna be salt the whole time this podcast <laughs> brought to you by salt life well remember we were at amelia island this weekend and that guy built his 993 gt2 tribute which was amazing it was a gorgeous oh, yeah. car and he's like my wife said i could buy whatever i want as long as it goes up in value i'm like oh i just no. wanted to walk away at that i was oh, like oh no. god that you're ain't training, it you're training her wrong <laughs> you're gonna that that's going to backfire. Yeah. You don't build a tribute car and expect it to be worth as much as you put into it. Very true. Very true. All right. Next question. Oh, how old was the owner? This question also stems from an assumption that old people are better car owners than young people. Are old people more mature? Sure. They've got life experience. Arguably more mature. 
But that doesn't mean they're more skilled at taking care of a car. Like, bad habits don't necessarily go away, and old people love Armorall, and Armorall's terrible for cars. A lot of old people are also cheap, and they love those Jiffy Lube oil changes on their Corvettes, if they actually change the oil. So, uh, yeah, younger drivers are known for being yahoos and, like, driving their cars harder. Like, you don't see boomers at the street takeovers, for sure. But it's just it's not a, a, a relevant question. It doesn't matter because, you know, you can have old guys that don't know how to drive a clutch and burn it up. And you can have young guys that are really, really care about their cars and take great care of them and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I think that one should be should be thrown out as well. Uh, we've got one left to go and we'll also get to listener questions. Uh, so let's go to a commercial. Tyler. Alrighty, Switchcast is also a boo. Well, yeah, brought to you by Nuts for Sticks. Goodness, I lost my place in my, my little cheat sheet here. Nuts for Sticks is a brand celebrating the manual transmission in all its forms. Forget the flappy paddles because we like shifting ourselves. Check out our fun and funny stick-themed shirts at nutsforsticks.com and save 10% on your order using the discount code SWITCHCAST. That is nutsforsticks.com and use the code SWITCHCAST. We learned last week that it is the letter four or, ooh, God, the number four, or you can spell it out because you're a smart guy. Yes. Yes. Buy all the domain names. The stickers work pretty well. It's still on. It was brained on a bunch. It's still on my car. Yes. From last week. That's so another thing I'm out of, but shows is available online. So we do need to get more nuts for sticks, stickers, because people are apparently nuts for stickers. You can't have that sticker back. I can bring you your dealer plate back, but the <laughs> sticker, I think it's on my car. <laughs> Speaking of which, a great piece of news this week. Sales of stick shift cars doubled from new stick shift cars doubled from 21 to 23, going from 0.9% of all new cars sold, which is a terrible number, to 1.7%. And used car searches for sticks are up as well, according to Jalopnik's reporting. I do think I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about the future. I do think that's probably just going to continue because the folks that are still as whatever happens with the next generation of cars, whether it's electric or hydrogen or whatever, you know, we're getting to a point where the folks looking for gasoline powered cars are going to become more and more enthusiast driven. Mm. So we're going to see that kind of stuff, I think, at least. That's a good point. People are being more nuts for sticks. Yeah. Heck yeah. Very print some more stickers. I'd like to think that it was purely nuts for sticks fault that cars, people bought new <laughs> stick shift cars. But given that I made two posts on Instagram on that account last year, probably isn't. <laughs> Their reason was that it, it was the, you know, the millennials, the younger generation. They like all sorts of vintage things. And that's extending to mm, clutch pedals. Or, yeah. or most cars with clutch pedals actually feel like something rather than the very clinical and depressing cars that you get now for the most part. Very possible. Very possible. All right. The final question that nobody should ever ask when they're buying a car. And this is a hypocritical one because I do ask it all the time, but I'll explain why. What's your bottom line? Hmm. My bottom line is a crack between my two cheeks anyway line get it anyway <laughs> no once again you're you're asking the seller to lie to you because they either don't know their bottom line and people like they can't grasp this principle right so with a dealer 
is purely math, right? You pay 85 for a car, you sell it for 90. You know what you have into it and what your profit margin needs to be. With an individual, a lot of times it's emotional. So it's how you're feeling that day, how, you know, what you had for breakfast. And so I might say, oh, my bottom line's 50. But if a guy comes in and offers me 47 cash and I found something else I wanted to buy or we got a huge bill or something, I'm like, screw it, let it go. So people don't actually know their bottom line or they're not going to tell you. And the reason I don't answer that is because buyers are dishonest in asking this question. They don't actually take the answer at face value. They use it as a new starting point for negotiations, or they'll use it to then shop other dealers. So if I'm asking 50 and I say my bottom line is 48, they're like, okay, cool. And then they go look at the other three cars they're looking at. Well, this guy will take 48. What's your bottom line? Then they come back to me. Well, how about 46? And I'm like, you're calling me a liar. Because I said my bottom line was 48. So either I'm a liar or or I'm a liar. Um, and I just, I straight up don't answer the question because I've had pretty close to a 0% success rate when that is asked very early on. Or if that's the opening question from somebody, I'm like, you're basically just not buying a car. Like, it, and it's not that I write them off. I will try, but it just never turns out that if somebody calls up and they're like, hey, what's your bottom line on this car, that they end up buying it. They just never do. Um, I should just give them like some guys, I should call their bluff and give them like crazy low wholesale numbers and see if they actually bite. Um, but yeah, it's it's an immediate red flag to me that that buyer is not a real buyer. Um, but I, I do use that question with people depending on how I feel them out, because I might be interested in the car and I just say like, okay, what's your bottom line? And, and if they give me a number, then I buy it, right? If they tell me that's their bottom line, I don't go back and say, well, I'm going to give you a different number, right? If I'm going to do that, I'm just going to start out by making an offer and then commence negotiations, but I'm not going to make them be dishonest because I hate it when people do that you know, to me. So if you are for real and that's your negotiation strategy, at least buy the car when they give you a good bottom line number. But the better thing to do is just make a freaking offer, right? Like that's just, you know what you want to pay, make an offer. And then the negotiations are at least honest. So dumb question to ask, but I, I do use it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a hypocrite. I think that leads nicely into one of our listener questions from this week. Uh, Fiero in chat asks, as a dealer, what is your response to what did you pay for it? I rarely get asked this question. Um, I don't I don't know if I ever do. I, I People will negotiate my consignment commission. They'll be like, well, how much are you making? Maybe you can cut your commission. And I think that's frustrating because you know it's it's out in the open they're basically saying well you're not worth that um i don't remember the last time i got asked what i was in a car um and i appreciate that but i think the best answer was given to me by a longtime friend who used to be in the car business and he basically said if i tell you what i'm in the car i'm not lying and if I don't tell you, it doesn't matter. Because I, th I think that that people people assume um, 
people assume dealers are lying, which is, you know, reasonable. It's like assuming politicians are lying. Um, but like, so I will say on, on a similar note, I'll, I'll tell people if they make an offer, I'll say, hey, I can't take 68 because somebody else offered me 70. Kind of like a different tack of I can't take 68 because I'm in at 67. But people will, I, I can't use that line anymore because I found out that people just don't believe me. Like it doesn't matter. They go, they think that, well, if you, somebody else offered you more than I'm willing to pay, then you should have taken it. And if you didn't take it, then you're obviously lying, even though neither of the offers are worth taking. So I, I think it's kind of along those same lines that even if I did tell the customer what I was in it, they wouldn't believe me. So it just, it never comes up in conversation, which I'm fine with. I feel like you might have less of an opportunity to be asked that as a dealer rather than like a private party person because they assume that no matter what you're trying to make money whereas somebody i don't know if that's true but well but a private party person in theory would, would be losing value on their car so that would be irrelevant yeah, also that's true yeah yeah no I, I i think that's a question of the past I, I i have been asked that question before but i don't think i have in the last four years okay so Next up, Anthony asks, uh, how much does full service records on a Porsche affect the uh, the price, meaning as a car with or without? Uh, that's a good question. It, and I like that he, you asked, you, I like that you asked uh, how much it affects the price, because ultimately that's what a lot of these metrics affect is, is the price. A number of owners affects the price. It doesn't affect the condition. Um the amount of service records affects the price, but not the condition. A very wise person said that service records only exist or only serve to tell you, or I'm sorry, to confirm what the car is presently, right? So the service records only tell you what you can learn by looking at the car. You can tell if a car has been serviced or hasn't. But again, people are unable to judge that on their own. So they want the service records, the paper trail to prove it. Now, I'm a nut for service records. I like having all that documentation, even though I'm never actually going to look through it. But it's a good reference because if I go, well, shoot, do I need to do the timing belt? Or when do I need to do the timing belt? I can look back through the records and find out. So I will absolutely pay a premium for service records. Um, it depends on the car, uh, on a Porsche, on a normal Porsche, it's probably like two to 3%, uh, on a specialty GT Porsche, it's probably more than 5% on Ferraris. It could be 10%. Um, it, it depends on the type of car and the type of buyer and what the service records are there for. If it's a collector car that people want provenance for huge paperwork matters big time. You know, a classic a vintage Ferrari, multi-million dollar car, one with provenance versus one without, big difference. A, a normal daily driver Porsche, I mean, we get cars in with big stacks of records and people buy the car and they don't even want them. They don't, we're like, hey, we have a binder. I don't care. I'm just going to drive it. So yeah, good question. Interesting. Very good question. Next up, Mo switching gears a little bit. Uh, they ask, what do you think? Like uh, with a clutch? Yeah, there's a clutch involved. Yes, he's there's one of the 2%. Of... <laughs> uh, what do you think of a Canadian cannonball run attempt? Uh, it's really dumb. Uh, 
in America, Cannonball is great because you have state sovereignty and pretty much nobody is going to prosecute like the federal government is not going to prosecute speeding. I don't even think they can. Um, and states are not typically going to like subpoena other states in order to try to prosecute you from away. Like it just doesn't happen. That's the the beauty of, of America, the land of the free, right? Uh, in Canada, they the federal government can prosecute you for speeding, and they take speeding very, very seriously. If you've been up there and seen the signs, radar detectors are illegal. Over 120 kilometers an hour, I think it is, is like automatic impound your car, go to jail. Like it's insane. They have a rolling slash vague statute of limitations, which means they could potentially prosecute you seven years from now if they decided to. And the reason I was opposed to doing it was that apparently they can actually like extradite you from the U.S. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to do it and then go to the U.S. and just never go back to Canada. Like they could come get you in the U.S. for breaking the speed limit up there. Yeah, they can send the Mounties after you. Right. So I know a couple people who have done it. I know the guy who holds the, you know, coast, uh, <laughs> trying to say it in my Canadian accent, coast to coast record. Um, no. Out and we about just got an immediate coast <laughs> from a producer, Ethan. I used to live near Canada, eh? Uh, people think Maine is part of Canada. Um that wasn't too far off. Anyway, but he does. He, the, the big thing is you do it and you don't talk about it. The the last publicized cannonball record, uh, Canadian. Let's call it Canadian ball. The last published <laughs> publicized Canadian ball record. They averaged the speed limit, so in theory they could say, "Well, we never exceeded the speed limit," which we all know they did. But it was it was very slow and didn't come with much fanfare, but also didn't come with you know, being prosecuted. So I wouldn't do it for nearly any amount of money. And if I did, I wouldn't tell anyone that I did it. So yeah, that's it. All right. Next, uh, this is a slight reference leading us into, I know we want to talk a little bit about Amelia, I think for the props. And yes. Props. Uh, so we saw an F 50 down there at one of the auctions that was gorgeous you could still see all the carbon weave and everything it was mm -hmm. amazing so mts 1993 uh says doug i'm also a big fan of the f50 but i like silver the silver colored cars have you ever seen a silver f50 in person and all things equal which do you think would fetch a higher price which i'm not a huge fan of that question black or silver uh black would fetch a higher price because i'd be bidding on it ha 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 um and i've like never seen a silver one there's only a handful of those I would like to. Um, I think black would probably fetch a higher price. Aren't so. there less black ones? There's only like three in the U.S.? Uh, there's four globally. There was two originally in the U.S. I think uh, one of the one of the two U.S. cars was wrecked and rebuilt. And then there was, I think, one of the European cars is now in the U.S. So I think there's three in the U.S. now and one still in Europe. Gotcha. So, yes. Um all right, that is it for user questions. We are running out of time. But in summary, what I wanted to say about the, the questions you shouldn't ask, and spoiler alert, next week we're going to cover the 10 questions everybody should ask when you're buying a car. But 
the the summary is you want to ask quantifiable and direct questions. Most of the questions I shot down tonight are indirect questions in that you're asked something that leads to the real answer you want. For example, I once got stopped on the water by the sheriff and he asked how old I was and I responded, I have my boater's license. Now, this mattered because a license, a boater's license in Ohio is only required for those born after 1982. And he got pretty perturbed at me for not answering his questions, to which I responded, I was just answering the next question that you were going to ask based on the answer to what my age was. I was just skipping a step and saving us all time. So the same principle applies here. Um, you want to know, is the car good or bad? And how many owners and where is the car from and all these other things are indirect questions that are you're trying to basically lead yourself to the answer, but they're not the right questions because they don't get you there. They're indirect questions that don't have a direct correlation to the condition. So that's why fundamentally you don't need to ask them, not just because they're annoying to sellers. <laughs> Um, so our last segment here before props and flops is the shrewd negotiator brought to you by VinWiki. And this is one step before the wall of shame. It's people that are trying hard to earn their way onto the wall of shame and will probably eventually end up there. But they're also just trying their hardest to get a good deal, either buying or selling. So, Tyler, take it away. What's the shrewd negotiator this week? I'm interested in your used 1994 Porsche 968 Coupe listed for $36,980. I have a small collection and am making a valid offer earnestly of $32,000 in full payment while I provide sales tax licensing and transport. If this is unacceptable, no response needed. I am firm in my offer. Well, this guy knows what he wants and doesn't want to be hounded by dealers. I, I get that because if you're apply uh, inquiring to like an auto nation dealership you'll get a uh, automated response and then something from the internet sales manager and then something from the sales manager and all these form emails so <laughs> uh, i could understand is is advanced frustration but um as much as the the hair raises on my back a little bit because of his directness um i actually appreciate this because he didn't ask my bottom line. He told me his top line and just was no BS. He just said, this is what I'm willing to pay. And if it doesn't work, no big deal. And needless to say, I didn't respond, <laughs> but I don't, I actually don't fault this guy. I, I like, I like the tactic. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give him, I'll give him points for that. Not, he doesn't get the car, but gets a pat on the back. Uh, all right. With that, we're moving on to the props and flops of the week. And then we're done. Brought to you by Switch Cars. Switch Cars is the enthusiast's dealership where we buy, sell, consign, service, and store only cars that we like ourselves. Check out our handpicked inventory at switchcars.com. And our pick of the week from Switch Cars Inventory is... Oh, man, this beautiful, practical, and appropriately priced BMW Z3 sitting next to me here in the studio, which is a fantastic starter sports car for someone in their 20s in digital marketing who wants a low-maintenance, fun car that the top comes down so that they can have the wind blow through their long, smooth locks of hair while they hustle the back roads. This sounds perfect for producer Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I don't remember how many miles are on it, but it is a 2.8, which is the larger engine of the first generation, and it's black on tan, and it's a stick shift, and it is on our website. So, Ethan, check it out. (laughs) (laughs) The flop and prop of the week are both from Amelia Island Concord this weekend, which was utterly fantastic. We go pretty much every year. It is an amazing event founded by Bill Warner, now owned by Haggerty, and their team did a, a wonderful job putting it on. And um, we had seven guys down there as part of our group from Ohio. And so we're going to highlight a couple flops and props from that event. The flop of the week from Amelia was this 997 faux GT3 that actually pulled in next to us. It had the arrow kit. It had a roll bar. It had some other GT3-esque mods. No big deal. But on the back, he had a badge, 911 GT. I'm like, golly, just don't even try. And since seeing this one, not only has Tyler sent me another Porsche that was over badged, but I've seen like a bajillion online, including a 996 Turbo I found for sale today that had a stack. And I'll go from bottom to top on the bumper. It said Carrera. And then on the rear deck lid, it was Turbo. And then above that, it was 911. And they were like different scripts from different generations. And get this, above the 911, there was a Scuderia Ferrari prancing horse sticker. What? It was so weird. It's a Ferrari 911 Turbo Carrera? <laughs> like, all these posers also all have vanity plates. Like, they just, they want attention. Like, the, the faux GT3 guy was too go fast. There's Which another is, one yeah. that was, I love to fly or I live to fly. I don't know. You need to buy another vowel there. Uh, Toys one. Oh, yeah. That was the Ferrari one. And IDM 966. Which oh, yeah. That was the one that was. I don't. Ex- it was a C4S. So it had Porsche in the new 991 script and the 911 Carrera 4S in a pro- like improperly spaced. <laughs> the 4S was from like a 997 and they put 3.6 under the third brake light. Yeah. It just hurts my soul. Hurts my soul. Anyway, all right, prop of the week. Tyler, let's hear yours first. This is difficult because uh, there's a lot. The entire weekend is a prop, uh, both for the people that you go with and the stuff you see and the experiences you have. But I think what blew all of us away enough for our friend David to almost throw himself out of the car as we were driving down the road uh, was a 917 just driving in traffic. Also, like, (laughs) roasting its clutch because it was stop and go up to a stop sign. Yeah, that thing, every video I've seen of that car from the weekend was, it was roasting its clutch. But it was so cool to see. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you'd ever see that again. I will, uh, I'll post that video on my story. It's also on, on, uh, Dice dry ice blastings reel on his Instagram, so check it out. It's 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 hilarious. I'll also post that uh, faux nine eleven. Uh, my prop of the week. There was a few of them highlights. There again, there were so many. Um, one we saw a a slant nose nine thirty, but it was a fixed headlight slant nose where the headlights were in the bumpers. There was no pop ups, and we thought it was like a Koenig kit or something but it was actually one of allegedly 58 cars built in the works building at Porsche. And they weren't like production cars. They were modified after production, but they were done by Porsche at the request of customers to mimic the 935. So I I was like, 
man, that's really cool. I never knew that. Not that I know everything about Porsches, but it was like John Sabo didn't know it either. <laughs> yeah. Dan Doucette didn't know it. Dan, did you know it? No, oh, come on. <laughs> Dan Doucette and it had like a whole red interior because the dude just loved guards red. So the steering wheel was red. <laughs> the seats were red. Yes, it was, it was very cool. Um, also, Haggerty gets a prop for approving my media pass. Uh, Pete's custom coach building for killing it with their 356 yes. custom build. Um, yeah, there's many, many, many. Uh, if you haven't been to the Amelia, as it's called now, um, you need to go absolutely need to go so anyway thank you to all of you for sticking with us tonight and every night thank you to uh tyler for being the ed mcmahon to my johnny carson we uh i do what i can big compliments (laughs) there uh thank you to my producer and digital marketer ethan huffnagel to our sponsors black sea over tansy (laughs) three Our sponsors, BoxCast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, and Stephen Holm Woodworking. Our bumper music is provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream their full album on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available next Monday in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for SwitchCast, all one word. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. as we look forward to edifying, educating, and entertaining you on the drive of your life.